Hello and welcome to this week's edition of the National Podcast, normally recorded in our studio at the Bishop Briggs Media Centre, currently recorded from our volunteers' homes. To keep in touch with us, use our social media platforms, Facebook, Instagram and Twitter, which are all at Q and Review. That's C-U-E-A-N-D-R-E-V-I-E-W. Or get in touch via information at qandreview.com. That's information at C-U-E-A-N-D-R-E-V-I-E-W.com. Please like and share our podcast and give us any constructive feedback. This article is from The National. Date 15th August 2022. From the news section. Iran denies involvement in attack on Sir Salman Rushdie in New York. By Adam Robertson. An Iranian government official has denied that Tehran had any involvement in the attack on author Sir Salman Rushdie. On Sunday, it was announced Rushdie had been taken off a ventilator and was talking again as he recovers from being stabbed whilst in the US. Spokesman for Iran's Foreign Ministry, Nasser Kanani, made the remarks in a briefing to journalists. He said, We, in the incident of the attack on Salman Rushdie in the US, do not consider that anyone deserves blame and accusations except him and his supporters. Nobody has the right to accuse Iran in this regard. Rushdie, 75, was stabbed on Friday while attending an event in western New York and suffered liver damage as well as severed nerves in his arm and an eye, his agent said. The award-winning author, has faced death threats over his book, The Satanic Verses, for more than 30 years. Some of the scenes in the 1988 book depict a character modelled on the Prophet Muhammad, which was met with widespread anger from members of the Muslim community. Iran's late Supreme Leader Ayatollah Ruhollah Khomeini had issued a fatwa or Islamic edict demanding Rushdie's death. An Iranian foundation had put up a bounty of over $3 million or £2.5 million for the author. In 1991, Hitoshi Igarashi, who translated the book into Japanese, was murdered. Rushdie's attacker, 24-year-old Hadi Matar, has pleaded not guilty to charges stemming from the assault through his lawyer. Kanani said Iran did not have any other information more than what the American media has reported. The West, condemning the actions of the attacker and in return glorifying the actions of the insulter to Islamic beliefs, is a contradictory attitude, he added. That article was by Adam Robertson. This article is from The National, date 15th August 2022, from the News section. Scotland, first in UK to launch support for neurodivergent workers, by Adam Robertson. 
Scotland has become the first country in the United Kingdom to launch a programme to support neurodivergent workers. Neurodiversity charity Salveson Mind Room Centre has launched its Neuro Inclusion at Work programme, backed by the Scottish Government. It aims to help those with neurodivergence, such as autism, dyslexia and dyspraxia. It is hoped the scheme can reach 1 million workers by 2026 and will support employers to become more aware, informed and empowered to take action to support individuals within their workplace. It is among a total of 13 projects supported by the Scottish Government's Workplace Equality Fund, which aims to address long-standing barriers to the labour market to make Scotland a fair work nation. CEO of Salveson Mindroom Centre, Alan Thornborough said, Employers that recognise, embrace and support neurodiversity are poised to attract and retain the best employees. That's why we've introduced the UK's first Neuro Inclusion at Work programme to help forward-thinking employers support and develop a neurodiverse workforce. We know that 15 to 20 percent of the global population are neurodivergent and we think there are significant opportunities to enable neurodivergent employees to thrive and for employers to build fully inclusive teams. Commercial law firm Burnus Paul and global investment manager Martin Curry will be among the first to partner on the programme. It is hoped training can help break down some of the workplace barriers neurodivergent people can often face. Thornborough added, over the next few months, we'll be bringing more partners into the programme. If diversity is important in your workplace, this could be the way to unlock talent and support your team. This is undoubtedly the next step on the way to achieving equality in the workplace. I would, implore, I would urge employers with interest in this space to work with us as we break new ground. Inclusion and Wellbeing Manager at Burnus Paul, Emma Smith, said they want to recognise everyone as an individual and create an environment where all our people can succeed. She added, as part of our work to attract and retain the best talent in the legal sector, we've embedded this in everything we do. We're committed to continuing on our journey to ensure equal opportunity for all and neuroinclusion is a natural next step for us. We are proud to be the first organisation to partner Salveson Mindroom Centre's Neuroinclusion at Work programme and are really looking forward to working with the team to drive forward change. That article was by Adam Robertson. This article is from The National, date 15th August 2022, from the politics section. The next Prime Minister must make good on pledge to Afghans by Zabir Zazai, 
CEO of the Scottish Refugee Council. One year ago, the scenes we saw unfolding in Afghanistan were a stark reminder of just how quickly any of us could be forced to flee our homes. Nobody expected the Taliban takeover to happen as quickly as it did, and our international leaders were simply unprepared to respond to the crisis appropriately. Tragically, the reality of daily life has not improved for most Afghans over the past 12 months. Thousands of people are living in truly dire circumstances of oppression and poverty. Recent reports of the standards of medical care available to ordinary families should shock us all. I know how it feels to be forced to leave everything behind in search of safety. I fled Afghanistan in 1999 and arrived in the UK off my own back. There was no organised scheme to help me. More than 20 years later, there are still no functioning safe routes to sanctuary for people seeking safety from Afghanistan. This is simply unacceptable. Every day I wake to messages on my phone from people in desperate need of protection who risked their lives for democracy and justice. They are still in hiding with no clear ways for them to find safety. People are worried for their lives and those of their families and children. The UK made a commitment to Afghanistan last year, a commitment it sadly has not fulfilled. The next Conservative Party leader and our next Prime Minister must renew that pledge. I call on the next Prime Minister to go beyond paying lip service to supporting the people of Afghanistan and to take meaningful action. This must include the Home Office fast-tracking the asylum claims of people from Afghanistan, given their reasons for claiming asylum could not be clearer. Scrapping the cruel rules around inadmissibility which deny protection to people simply because of the route they took to reach the UK and reviving and expanding the Afghan Citizens Resettlement Scheme or ACRS. The UK evacuated people from Afghanistan in the days and weeks immediately following the Taliban takeover. I'm sure we all remember the deeply unsetting, upsetting scenes at Kabul airport as desperate people tried to flee. But the UK only evacuated people who had worked with the UK government, selecting them using extremely strict criteria. Even some of those who had worked with the UK and whose lives were in direct danger were left behind. The UK government later announced it would launch the ACRS to bring more ordinary Afghans to safety here in the UK. This scheme effectively has not materialised and has helped a vanishingly small number of people. It is frankly insulting that the Home Secretary made headlines by committing to bring 20,000 people to safety and has taken almost no action to make these headlines a reality. The UK government must revive and expand the ACRS to bring more people to safety in the UK. It is taking an ever more punitive approach to immigration and asylum. 
Its Nationality and Borders Bill, the Anti-Refugee Bill, criminalised the very act of seeking asylum in this country. This breaches international law and is a shockingly callous piece of law from a country which wants to be seen as global Britain. The people of Afghanistan needed help one year ago. The UK government did not step up to meet its moral responsibility then. But the people of Afghanistan are still in need of help and safe routes to sanctuary. I urge the UK government to take this moment to change course and offer a response to the crisis in Afghanistan, of which we can all be proud. That article was by Sabir Zazai, Chief Executive of the Scottish Refugee Council. This article is from The National, date 15th August 2022, from the Culture section. Why a non-binary Joan of Arc triggered the anti-trans lobby. By Steph Payton. One of the strangest things I experienced while on furlough during the pandemic was the odd way that time moved. Lockdown was such a black hole of experience that I honestly can barely remember it, like a blip in time that is now simply gone. Thankfully, I don't seem to be the only one having issues with the passage of time, given that the whole United Kingdom seems to be currently about 40 years in the past. Not since Thatcher has Britain been facing such a wave of strike action, along with the threat of rolling power blackouts through winter, and to top it all off, a nice moral panic about the LGBTQ plus community. I could at least have consoled myself with the thought that Bronski Beat would get themselves back together to provide a synth-pop soundtrack for our return to the recent past. If Steve Bronski was still alive, of course. The 1980s weren't exactly an easy time to be queer, even though there was also a lot of joy and love too. Thatcher's government and the media led a crusade against the supposed promotion of homosexuality and used it to bolster their support. In this case, promotion meant really any acknowledgement that gay men and lesbians existed, which manifested in Section 28 or Section 2A in Scotland, and the consequences of which are still felt today. Yet there are many similarities between Thatcher's conservative campaign against gay men and lesbians in the 80s and today's venomous tirade against the transgender community and the latest controversy surrounding the Globe Theatre's production of I, Joan, a reimagining of Joan of Arc as non-binary, is another unfortunate example. It's not often that I get to put that theatre degree of mine to use, so strap yourselves in. Here's the background. A new Globe Theatre production is telling the story of the French saint from a new perspective, and the anti-trans community is furious about it. Joan of Arc, played by Isabel Tom, 
will use they, them pronouns throughout the play. And honestly, that's about all anyone needed to know before kicking off like a cat leaping into the air, having mistaken a pickle for a snake, despite it being harmless. Unless you happen to be one of the unfortunate few with an aversion to pickles. In our current climate, it is a provocative portrayal. But theatre often asks challenging questions and explores ideas through stories and scenarios close enough to our own world and society as to act as a mirror on ourselves. Playful exploration of gender has roots in history as far back as the written word. Looking to Shakespeare's time when women weren't permitted on stage and the roles were filled instead by men, there was always an awareness of the situation, if not the injustice of it. Among Shakespeare's contemporaries, Ben Jonson's Epicene, or The Silent Woman, played with audience expectations of gender by having a boy playing a woman on stage revealed to be, in fact, a boy playing a woman as part of a successful scheme to trick a gentleman who hates noise into gifting his nephew an inheritance. Going back to Shakespeare, for anyone who thinks using they, them pronouns in the singular is some new fad, the playwright used them as such in his own writing. Sorry haters, but we've got four centuries of literature on our side. So was Joan of Arc transgender? Who knows? Probably not. Only she could say. And the opportunity to ask that question has long since passed. But why does it matter? I don't believe the playwright was really claiming that she was. It's an interesting perspective to explore regarding a historical figure who was executed in part for wearing men's clothing and defying the expectations of what a woman was, someone who lived out with the rigid gender binary of the time. People who exist outside of male and female genders around the world have often been interpreted to have mystical and spiritual powers. The Hijra a third gender in Hindu culture, are historically represented as providing blessings. Joan of Arc claimed she was told to wear men's clothing by her God and his angels. Why not explore the idea? If you have a problem with it, well, there are plenty of books, films, paintings of Joan of Arc as a woman to satisfy yourself with, much like there are plenty of representations where Anne Boleyn isn't a black woman and Battlestar Galactica, Starbuck and Boomer are both still men. Really, I suspect the backlash against this new production comes from a much pettier and more trite place than historical accuracy or the supposed erasure of a female historical figure. It comes from the same place that led an army of anti-trans activists to complain to the co-op for daring to have a transgender woman on a Christmas ad or to oppose the first trans man to appear on EastEnders. In reactionary circles, any representation of transgender identities 
much like any gay relationship or black or female lead character, is viewed solely as an exercise in political correctness or wokeness. The assumption being that only straight, white, cis men can grace our schemes and stages in a political neutral manner. GB's news take on the Joan of Arc production was that it was in service solely to inclusivity rather than a perspective that deserved exploration in its own right. Any inclusion of minority groups is viewed solely as ideological and therefore any piece of media that acknowledges the existence of transgender people and recognises their identity is to be opposed. To accept it is to accept that we exist. That article was by Steph Payton. From the National, Tuesday the 16th of August 2022, from the news section, British gas owner Centrica gets £56 million tax rebate from North Sea Operations by Ninian Wilson. The owner of British Gas received a £56 million tax rebate on its operations in Scottish waters last year. The firm's owner, Centrica, was allowed to use its losses in previous years in its North Sea drilling operations to offset profits it made there in 2021. And, according to an analysis by climate group Uplift, Centrica paid Norway £35 million in tax in the same period. This follows intense pressure on the UK government to impose the energy giants with another windfall tax to help households struggling amid the cost of life living crisis. The rebate comes as Centrica's profits skyrocketed to £1.3 billion in the first six months of 2022, a five-fold increase which was aided by soaring wholesale fuel, fuel prices. This is despite a fall in profits in its British gas division. Tessa Khan, a climate change lawyer and founder of Uplift, said, It beggars belief that Centrica is essentially taking handouts from the UK in tax rebates while millions of people can't afford their energy bills. The UK is one of the most profitable places in the world for oil and gas companies. Even with the windfall tax, they still pay less here than the global average. The energy firm said that losses from previous years were connected to its spirit branch of operations. I think a Centrica spokesperson added that the firm was expected to pay around £600 million through windfall taxes over the next couple of years. Recently, Keir Starmer has made fresh calls to renew the windfall tax outlining a £29 billion plan which would freeze the energy price cap at its current level of £1,971 for six months from October, a move he claims would save the average household £1,000. However, the plan has been challenged by economists who have warned that it could cost the taxpayer almost as much as the furlough scheme if extended. Despite the raised concerns, Starmer has deflected criticism towards the UK government and Tory leadership hopefuls saying they had not proposed any credible proposals to tackle the crisis. And the article was by Ninian Wilson. From the National, Tuesday the 16th of August 2022, from the news section, Michael Gove challenged over Brexit lies at Athens airport by passengers in 30-hour delay by Craig Meakin, multimedia journalist. Michael Gove was confronted over his Brexit lies at an airport on Sunday night after a passenger suffered a 30-hour delay to her flight home. 
Candida Jones, a former Labour councillor who works for a Labour peer, challenged the former cabinet minister at Athens International Airport in Greece. The London woman had been due to return to Gatwick on Saturday, but her EasyJet flight was postponed until 10.35pm on Sunday due to airport disruption, meaning she didn't reach her destination until 2am on Monday morning. Jones confronted Gove, who is thought to be holidaying alone after his divorce, accusing him of treating the British people as if we're stupid. The 50-year-old said UK airport delays were compounded by Brexit as she took the former levelling up minister to task. Jones asked Gove to name the opportunities of Brexit, which she said agricultural reforms and the Covid vaccine rollout. She told the Mirror, I said, come on, this is just ridiculous. There's nothing about being an EU member that in any way impeded us from doing the vaccine rollout sooner. I said, you're a smart guy, I know what you're telling me is not true, and you've got to stop treating the British people as if we're stupid. Jones vented her anger on social media, alongside a picture of Gove on his phone in the airport writing, almost 30 hour delay to our at EasyJet flight now. I'm told the problem is a lack of staff due to the pandemic, compounded, in the case of the UK, by Brexit. So it's at least some consolation to find Arch Brexit here and Michael Gove caught up in the same shit show. Jones said Gove was polite but very passive-aggressive as he insisted Brexit was not the cause of the disruption. The former Labour politician also challenged Gove on the infamous £350 million a week vote leave bus used during the EU referendum, as well as running through some of the other lies of the campaign. Jones said she was polite to the politician but added that, as a public servant, he must be held to account. Jones said, Gove said, I'm on my holiday and this is not the appropriate place for this conversation. That was the gist. I said yes, and I'm on my holiday and I spent 30 hours trying to get home. She said the Brexiteer was essentially telling her, I thank you for the opportunity of hearing your views, but I don't think you and I are going to persuade each other. Jones said while it was impossible to quantify how much of the airport disruption was due to leaving the EU or the impact of Covid, she said the staff shortages were compounded by Brexit. The incident comes 14 years after Jones ran into another high-profile Tory politician. In 2008, she had written an article entitled How George Osborne Ruined My Day at the Beach in Corfu. According to Jones' family, complained loudly that this was an inappropriate place to bring a motorboat to which Osborne replied, It's a pier, that's what it's for. An ally of Go said, said of the confrontation, He was polite as ever. And that article was by Craig Meehan. From The National, Tuesday the 16th of August 2022, from the news section. Ofgem threatened with legal action over energy bills price cap rise. By Xander Eliards. UK energy regulator Ofgem has been threatened with legal action should it fail to protect vulnerable customers from skyrocketing fuel bills. A Scottish fuel poverty campaigner is at the forefront of the move, which has been taken alongside Good Law Project, GLP, and Fuel Poverty Action. Dylan Alexander, the chair of the Highlands and Islands Housing Association's Affordable Warmth Group, has teamed up with the other two campaign groups to send Ofgem a letter warning of the possibility of legal action following any future announcements on the energy price cap. 
In April, the cap in energy prices imposed by Ofgem was raised by 54% to £1,971. An announcement is expected on August 26, which will see the price cap raised again from October. Ofgem has predicted this new cap could be around £2,800, while consultancy film Cornwall Insight say it could be as high as £3,580. Oxyleone, another energy consultancy, has predicted that the cap could rise to as much as £5,000 in April 2023, by which point Ofgem has said it will be issuing quarterly revisions to the cap, rather than every six months. In their 20-page pre-action letter to the energy regulator, the campaigners say that Ofgem will have failed in its legal duty to make protecting customers its principal objective if it allows such steep rises to go ahead. The letter alleges, Ofgem has misdirected itself and failed to carry out an impact assessment, including a related consultation process, before deciding to increase the energy price cap, as it was required to do so by S.4AA3A-D of the Gas Act 1986 and S.3A38D of the Electricity Act 1989. It further claims that the Energy Regulator had failed to comply with the Public Sector Equality Duty, PSED, by not conducting an equality impact assessment in relation to the likely impact of proposed increases in the context of the current crisis despite the fact that any increase is likely to disproportionately affect individuals with certain protected characteristics. The campaign groups say that legal action will be taken swiftly if a large rise in fuel bills is announced on August 26, without the concerns having been addressed. Particular worries are raised about people who live in off-gas areas, such as Shetland, whose energy costs are much higher. Joe Mollum, Director of Good Law Project said, Ofgem has the power to protect vulnerable people from the devastating increases in energy costs and we think they should use them. Having failed to properly assess the risks, they don't seem to be planning any steps to protect vulnerable groups. We hope we're wrong and that Ofgem is doing all this behind the scenes, but we don't want to wait for the 26th of August announcement to find out. We've put them on notice that if they don't promptly comply with their legal duties, before announcing the next increase, we'll be ready to challenge it straight away. Ofgem says it is protecting millions of households by capping the level of products an energy supplier can make to 1.9%. Announcing changes to its price cap at methodology earlier this month, it added that it is not in anyone's interest for more suppliers to fail and exit the market. It went on, ultimately, energy has to be paid for in full and the price cap has to reflect the cost to the supplier of buying it wholesale and supplying it to homes. In late July, energy giant Centrica and Shell both announced billions of pounds of profits in a recording, record, recording breaking time for their businesses. First Minister Nicola Sturgeon has called for the anticipated price cap rise to be stopped, while Labour leader Sir Stammer has laid out a £29 billion plan to address the national emergency and freeze the cap at its current level for six months. An Ofgem spokesperson said, Ofgem's priority is to protect customers and we know that people are currently under huge pressure as bills continue to rise. We will keep working closely with the government, consumer groups 
and with energy companies and what further support can be provided to help with these higher prices. We can confirm that Ofgem has received a letter from the Good Law Project and we will reply in due course. And that was an article by Xander Eliards. From The National Tuesday the 16th of August 2022 from the Politics section Scottish independence support to go up with Rishi Sunak or Liz Truss poll finds by Abby Garton Crosby Both Rishi Sunak and Liz Truss would boost support for Scottish independence as Tory leader, a poll has found. Around a quarter of Scots will be more likely to vote yes with either of the candidates becoming Prime Minister, compared to only a fraction moving the other way. It comes ahead of Sunak and Truss visiting Perth for a hustings this evening, with the candidates pledging to bring in greater scrutiny of the Scottish Government if they became the next Prime Minister, ahead of their journey north. The SNP have responded by demanding that Sunak and Truss apologise for their role in the Tory-made cost-of-living crisis, adding that their fresh attacks on devolution show how out of touch they are with the people of Scotland. The survey of 1,002 Scots by Servation and Diffley Partnership for Charlotte Street Partners looked at attitudes to Truss and Sunak north of the border. It found that, with both candidates, support for independence would rise regardless of who takes the keys to number 10. When respondents were asked if they were more likely to support independence if Truss wins the leadership contest, 20% said they were much more likely, while 5% said they were a little more likely to back leaving the UK. When asked the same question in reference to Sunak, the posters found that 19% were very much more likely to support independence, and 7% said they were a little more likely. For both contenders, the majority of respondents said that their appointment would not change their stance, and only a small amount would be more likely to back the union. Just 6% were a little or much more likely to oppose Scottish independence with Sunak as Prime Minister, against 7% for Truss. With Sunak, 60% said having him in power would make no difference to how they planned to vote, whereas the figure was 68% for Truss. The survey also found that regardless of who the next leader is, neither is likely to be support for the Tories in Scotland. Just 11% of people said they would be more likely to support the Tories at a general election under Truss, while 9% said they would switch to the Tories under the former Chancellor. SNP Westminster leader Ian Blackford hit out ahead of the Perth event. He said, The only thing Rishi Sunak and Liz Truss should be coming to Scotland to do is to say sorry for their part in the spiralling Tory-made cost-of-living crisis which they have directly contributed to. But the fact that the new polling evidence shows that both of them would boost support for independence, regardless of who becomes PM, should tell them all they need to know about how they are seen by the vast majority of people across Scotland. Meanwhile, ahead of the debate, both Sunak and Trust vowed to bring in laws which would allow for greater scrutiny of the Scottish Parliament. Trust committed to getting Scotland's economy moving and vowed to change the Scotland Act to give parliamentary privilege to MSPs in order to create more robust questioning of ministers and increase the powers of the Scottish Parliament to hold the Scottish Government to account. Trust said, For too long, people in Scotland have been let down by the SNP focusing on constitutional division instead of their priorities. That won't happen under my watch.
She added, I'll make sure that my government does everything to ensure elected representatives hold the devolved administration to account for its failure to deliver the quality public services, particularly health and education, that Scottish people deserve. As Prime Minister and Minister for the Union, I will deliver on my ambitious plan to capitalise on the opportunity we have to turbocharge the growth in business investment required to get Scotland's economy moving. Sunak, meanwhile, promised to make it a requirement for Scotland's most senior civil servant, the Permanent Secretary to the Scottish Government, to attend Westminster's Public Affairs and Constitutional Affairs Select Committee, PACAC, each year, just like the UK Government's Cabinet Secretary. The former Chancellor has also promised to enforce consistent reporting of public service performance data across the country so that the UK Government could hold the Scottish Government accountable for essential public service delivery. Sunak said, For too long, the SNP have been able to obscure their failures by picking and choosing the data they publish. I would change that, ensuring the Scottish Government's records could be held to account while ensuring our public services are better joined up. Blackford added that Sunak and Trust were both pandering to an an out-of-touch Tory membership. He said, So as the Tory leadership circus rolls into Scotland, if the candidates want to have any credibility, they must apologise for the Tory feelings that have pushed so many families to the brink. As for Sunak and Trussie's bids to outdo each other on trying to mount further attacks and devolution, it just shows how out of touch they are. Their plans to demand Scottish civil servants are forced to be grilled by Westminster committees amount to little more than sinister show trials, but also speaks volumes about their lack of confidence in Tory MSPs to do the job of scrutinising the government. People across Scotland have had more than enough of this Tory government, and the only way to escape Westminster chaos and corruption is with independence. During the cost of living crisis, many neighbouring countries have capped energy price increases, cut VAT and bills, and offered meaningful financial support to the most vulnerable. The UK Tory government has sat in its hands, and both Rishi Sunak and Liz Truss have said nothing. On Saturday, Truss accused devolved leaders in Scotland, Wales and Northern Ireland of playing political games rather than delivering for voters. Her comments came after she sparked controversy by denouncing Scotland's First Minister Nicola Sturgeon as an attention seeker, suggesting she would ignore her demands for a fresh referendum on independence. And that article was by Abby Garton Crosby. From the National, Tuesday the 16th of August 2022, from the Culture section, interview, comedian Jamie MacDonald on being blind, it's an asset for my comedy, by Adam Robertson. Scottish comedian Jamie MacDonald says he's using his blindness as an asset in his run at this year's Edinburgh Fringe. Originally from Glasgow, the star of Radio 4's Life in the Blink and comedy series The Scots is currently performing his latest show, Reasonably Adjusted. MacDonald has had quite the career trajectory, having initially studied ancient history at the University of St Andrews before going on to work in the banking sector in London. He told The National, I came out of university not knowing what I wanted to do. I did a degree in ancient history and then a law conversion, but I knew for a fact I wasn't going to be a lawyer. I quit that and my dad and brother were both accountants, so I just fell into that. 
I didn't like it, but I was in Shoreditch in London where they had the comedy cafe. The credit crunch hit and, to be honest, it was a good thing for me because I don't know if I would have quit. I didn't instantly get into stand-up. I was doing bits of writing here and there and some voiceover stuff, but eventually did my first friend show in 2013. McDonald says that, as a family, they never really talked about politics around the table, but instead tried to make each other laugh. So I like to think I've won that battle now that I'm a comedian, he adds. His friend show focuses on why blindness isn't the worst thing in the world, as readers of the New York Times once suggested in a poll when asked what the worst thing that could happen to them was. McDonald started to lose his sight in his early teens due to a progressive degenerative retinal disease. It's not setting the record straight so much, but it's putting another opinion out there that disability and happiness can be mutually exclusive, McDonald explains. He adds, I really don't think it's that bad. It doesn't flavour the big decisions in my life. I kind of pigeonhole myself. As a comedian, you're holding the mirror up to life, but mine is coming from a blind perspective, so people expect me to do it from that because otherwise I'd be wasting it when it's really an asset for my comedy. Following on from two years of Covid, McDonald is grateful that the festival now finally has a sense of normality to it again. He said, It's brilliant being back. People are joyous because last year it was difficult with Covid, the one-way systems and perspex everywhere. I know Covid isn't gone, but we can manage it better now and everybody is fired up. The place is packed. It's convivial. I've been drinking for about 15 days straight now. As a comedian, he also had some thoughts on the recent controversy surrounding performer Jerry Sadovitz, who had his show cancelled owing to numerous complaints made to the Pleasant Theatre. Sadovitz has since released a statement about the show's cancellation in which he said, I ask nobody to agree with anything I say or do on stage. Asked about the row, McDonald said, I think it's dangerous because everyone knows who he is. He's controversial. He's been picked up in saying words that are massively inappropriate though. Sadovitz is not an idiot. He'll have been doing something nuanced and I think that comes down to taste, which I don't think you should be cancelled for. Comedy is in a demand-led industry and if people don't like you, they just won't go see you. The way to not feel unsafe about an act is to not go and see them. After the Fringe, McDonald said he will be making an appearance in the next episode, next season of popular quest show QI before going back to doing weekends in mad places all over the country. Reasonably Adjusted is running at the Edinburgh Fringe from 3rd to 29th of August. And that interview was by Adam Robertson. The National News on Wednesday the 17th of August. Boris Canal plans to tap into Scottish water. An article written by Laura Webster. Senior Conservatives are backing plans for a Great Boris Canal to move massive quantities of water from Scotland and Wales to England after droughts were declared across the nation. Parts of England have had to bring in hosepipe bans and wildfire warnings after temperatures rose across the summer, as climate change brings more extreme weather to the UK. Now Tories are apparently considering the bid for a £14 billion super canal connecting southern Scotland to parts of England which are suffering from less rainfall than usual. Proposals to move water from resource-rich Scotland to other parts of the UK have been floated for years and while serving as Mayor of London, Boris Johnson backed the idea. 
In 2012, Mr Johnson raised the potential of the Grand Contour Canal, a plan created all the way back in the 1940s, which would shift water through the Scottish borders and down to England's southeast. Mr Johnson said at the time, The rain, it raineth on the just and the unjust, says the Bible, but frankly it raineth a lot more in Scotland and Wales than it doth in England. Now, senior Tories have told the Daily Mail that they want to revisit the proposal to help the South and Midlands deal with future droughts. A spokesperson for the UK government's environmental department, DEFRA, said millions are being invested in inter-regional water transfers. They said these can play an important role in moving water from areas of the country with plentiful supplies to those with high demand. According to the Mail, the canal would be named after Boris Johnson, who has promoted a number of major infrastructure projects, only for them to never come to fruition. Dominic Cummings, the Prime Minister's former senior adviser, claimed last year that Mr Johnson is obsessed with infrastructure projects to serve as a monument to him, comparing them to big projects designed by Roman emperors, such as the Hadrian's Wall. Mr Johnson's failed Garden Bridge cost a whopping £53 million, with £43 million of that being public cash. He also promoted the idea of a bridge connecting Scotland to Northern Ireland, which a feasibility study found could cost £335 billion. The construction would have been fraught with difficulties, including that the build would take decades and have to go through part of the ocean filled with tonnes of munitions. This Boris Canal would apparently be built along the 310-foot contour of land from Kielder Water Reservoir and travel down to the Midlands and south before being extended north and west to create a natural water grid connecting Wales, Scotland and England. According to engineers, the water would be moved along a gentle gradient to avoid the need for expensive pumping mechanisms. However, the estimated cost of £14 billion provided eight years ago, which is likely to be significantly higher now, and the project's feasibility have been cited as reasons for the scheme never having gone ahead. Green MSP Mark Ruskell told us whether it was the London Garden Bridge proposal he wasted £40 million on and didn't build, or his botched proposals for a tunnel to Northern Ireland, it seems that every grand infrastructure project linked to Boris Johnson ends in failure. An article written by Laura Webster. The National News on Wednesday the 17th of August. Couple tried to escape Cameron House Hotel blaze via window. An article written by Gregor Young. Two men who died after being stuck in a burning hotel had tried to smash open a window to escape the inferno, an inquiry has heard. A blaze at the five-star Cameron House Hotel claimed the lives of Simon Midgley, who was 32, and his partner Richard Dyson, who was 38, from London, in December 2017. A fatal accident inquiry into the blaze at the hotel on the banks of Loch Lomond, near Balach, is being held at Paisley Sheriff Court. Gary Love, a fire investigator, told the inquiry how he found evidence the couple had tried to escape from the blaze. I noted that a large picture frame was on its side, directly below the window of the second-floor landing, he said, describing the area of the hotel where the men's bodies were found. Mr Love added that the frame had been prized from the adjacent wall, most likely with the intention to be used to smash the window. 
the now retired investigator for the Scottish Fire and Rescue Service told Crown Counsel Graham Jessop that what they had been trying to break through had been a laminated double-glazed window which could not be opened and had managed to break through only one pane. Mr Love told the inquiry that his investigation found the blaze had started in the concierge cupboard of the Grade B listed building and inside they found evidence of a galvanised bucket, kindling and a shovel. He told the inquiry more than 75% of the main building of the 128-room hotel had been severely damaged in the incident and the fire had caused the majority of the roof to collapse. Mr Love said his conclusion was the fire was accidental and was most probably the cause of a careless act. Ashes have a low thermal conductivity, consequently it's not rare for individuals to believe ashes are dead, while in reality hot or smouldering embers are still contained within, he told the inquiry. Mr Love told Sheriff Thomas McCartney that studies have shown that embers can cause a fire hours after. Darren Robinson, the hotel's night manager at the time, gave evidence to the inquiry yesterday and was shown footage of night porter Christopher O'Malley filling a black plastic bag with ashes and putting it into a cupboard, which also stored kindling for the nearby fire. In one part of the footage, Mr O'Malley put the ashes in as he was talking to another hotel employee. Mr Robinson said, It's not something I would have done, adding that it was a fire risk. Hotel operator Cameron House Resort, brackets Loch Lomond Limited, was previously fined £500,000 and Mr O'Malley was given a community payback order over the fire. Dumbarton Sheriff Court heard in January last year that the fire started after Mr O'Malley emptied ash and embers from a fuel fire into a polythene bag and then put it in a cupboard of kindling and newspapers. The hotel firm admitted failing to take the necessary fire safety measures to ensure the safety of its guests and employees between January 14, 2016 and December 18, 2017. The inquiry continues. An article written by Gregor Young. The National Politics on Wednesday 17 August. Date set for further meeting on abortion clinic buffer zones. An article written by Gregor Young. The First Minister has set a date for the second summit on abortion rights to further discuss the implementation of buffer zones around abortion clinics in Scotland. Nicola Sturgeon will gather representatives from council umbrella body COSLA and the most affected local authorities on August 29th. At the first summit in June, the First Minister announced that the government was considering enacting buffer zones in test councils, with Edinburgh and Glasgow identified as potential candidates. A spokesperson for the Scottish Government said, The First Minister will convene a meeting with representatives from COSLA and the most affected local authorities on August 29th. The meeting will focus on the bylaw process and aims to continue discussions with local government on how best to protect patient rights in the shorter term, whilst national legislation is progressed. It comes as the public consultation on Scottish Greens MSP Gillian Mackay's private members' bill to introduce 150-metre anti-abortion buffer zones around clinics across Scotland closed. Scotland has seen an increase in the number of anti-abortion protests outside of health clinics this year. In response, the Scottish Government has commissioned research on anti-abortion protests, costing £68,112. 
It hopes the research will give them a better picture of the prevalence and scale of protests in Scotland and the impact on those attempting to access services. But the co-founder of a campaign group calling for buffer zones told the Scotsman they have reservations about whether the research will provide new information and be worth the time and money. Lucy Grieve, co-founder of Back Off Scotland, said... We've got the evidence and we don't need to undertake more expensive research to learn what we already know. The collation of evidence they want to do will take a lot more time and more women and staff will be harassed in the interim. This money could be better spent funnelling it into propagating the buffer zone working group or getting legal advice for the legal challenges we're inevitably going to face. However, the Scottish Government said that action will not depend on the research being completed. A spokesperson said, The First Minister has been clear that work to find a way through the complex legal issues that apply to safe access zones will not have to await this research being complete. However, this research is a vital part of building the required evidence base as legislation is progressed. An article written by Gregor Young. The National News on Wednesday the 17th of August. Scottish pop idol singer found dead. An article written by Jane MacLeod. Former pop idol contestant and theatre star Darius Campbell Dunesh has been found dead in his United States apartment at the age of 41, his family has announced. The Scottish singer and actor was found dead in Rochester, Minnesota, last Thursday. The cause of death remains unknown. A statement said, It's with great sadness that we announce the passing of Darius Campbell Dunesh. Darius was found unresponsive in bed in his apartment room in Rochester, Minnesota, and was pronounced dead in the afternoon by the local medical examiner's office. The local police department has confirmed that there were no signs of intent or suspicious circumstances. The cause of his sudden death is unknown at this stage, while medical examinations continue. We ask that you kindly respect our wishes for privacy at this time, while we come to terms with the tragic loss of our son and brother. The singer-songwriter and actor was known as Darius Dinesh when he made his first bid for fame in ITV shows Pop Stars in 2001 and also appeared on the first Pop Idol, which was won by Will Young. After Pop Idol, Campbell Dinesh turned down Simon Cowell's offer of a record deal and signed with producer Steve Lillywhite, whose credits include U2 and The Rolling Stones. His debut single, Colourblind, was released in July 2002 and went straight to number one, marking the start of a run of top ten releases. He went on to forge a successful stage career, appearing in Chicago as Billy Flynn in two runs of the production, as well as Guys and Dolls, Gone with the Wind and More in the West End. He lived in the United States and found love with Canadian actress Natasha Henstridge, whose films include sci-fi hit Species. The couple married in 2011 at the San Isidro Ranch in Santa Barbara, California, but were divorced a few years later. Campbell Dinesh was born in Glasgow to a Scottish mother and an Iranian father. The eldest of three boys, he attended Bears Den Primary School before studying English literature and philosophy at the University of Edinburgh. Although he found fame as Darius Dinesh, he later changed his name to incorporate his mother Avril's maiden name, Campbell, after an emotional visit to his grandfather in a Paisley nursing home made him reflect on his Scottish heritage. Television and radio presenter Nicky Chapman, who was a judge on Pop Stars while Campbell Dinesh was a contestant on the show in 2001, tweeted, 
there will only ever be one Darius Campbell Dunesh, a true gent with a kind soul and a mischievous twinkle in his eye. From that eventful first audition on Pop Stars to him kindly inviting me to see him perform on the West End stage. Our thoughts are with his family at this sad time. An article written by Jane McLeod. The National News on Wednesday the 17th of August. Nicola Sturgeon to hold urgent summit with energy firms. An article written by Xander Elliott's. The First Minister is to hold an urgent summit with energy firms amid concerns that more than one-third of Scottish households will be in fuel poverty come October. UK energy regulator Ofgem is due to announce a rise in the price cap on August 26th to come into effect on October 1st, with fears this could be as high as £3,580, an 80% increase on the current £1,971 price cap. Ofgem has estimated that the rise will be slightly smaller, but still take the price cap up to £2,800, which is a 42% increase from October. The Scottish Government said that even this lower rate could put as many as 36% of Scottish households into fuel poverty, meaning that they spend more than 10% of their income on energy after housing costs have been deducted. First Minister Nicola Sturgeon, who previously called for the UK government to intervene and prevent the price cap going up, has said that a summit with energy firms and consumer groups will be convened to discuss the issue. Her government has said that the major energy suppliers, including Scottish Power, Ovo Energy, Centrica, Octopus Energy and E.ON, as well as industry bodies and key consumer and poverty organisations, will attend. While no date for the meeting has been confirmed, it will be before any price cap rise is announced on August 26th. Announcing the meeting, the First Minister again called on the Tory government to take action now, saying key levers to tackle the crisis lay in their hands. A similar meeting, held between outgoing Prime Minister Boris Johnson and energy suppliers earlier in the month, led to no new support for struggling households. Ms Sturgeon said... I know that this is an incredibly unsettling time for households and energy consumers across Scotland, and the Scottish Government will continue to do everything we can to support those affected. There's not a single solution to this problem, and government, industry and the third sector in Scotland need to work collaboratively together to ensure the right support is in place for households and businesses during this challenging winter. This could include improving the availability of help and advice, and considering a more compassionate approach to debt management. However, it remains the case that the powers and resources needed to tackle this emergency on the scale required access to borrowing, welfare, VAT on fuel, taxation of windfall profits, regulation of the energy market, all lie with the UK government. Only the UK government can access and make available resources on the scale required. They need to take action now. As I said last week, a first step would be to cancel the energy price cap rise this autumn. Fraser Scott, CEO of Energy Action Scotland, said, With our colleagues at the Poverty Alliance, we welcome the First Minister's intervention in gathering energy companies together to talk how we can best support households struggling to afford spiralling energy bills. Fuel poverty will affect over one million Scottish households this winter, requiring urgent intervention focused on targeting those most in need. Cold, damp homes affect health and well-being and will put thousands of lives at risk, as well as adding additional pressure to the NHS, 
making this a vital intervention for Scotland. Mr Scott's estimate for fuel poverty affecting more than one million homes is worse than the Scottish Government's, which said it calculated that 906,000 households will be in fuel poverty in October 2022. Peter Kelly, director of the Poverty Alliance, also welcomed the news, adding that lives would be at risk if no action was taken to address the energy crisis before winter. The situation could scarcely be more urgent, Mr Kelly added. An article written by Xander Eliads. The National News on Wednesday the 17th of August. Police in Scotland agree to pay rise following dispute. An article written by Adam Robertson. Police officers in Scotland have agreed to an improved pay offer just weeks after they rejected a derisory offer of £565. All ranks across the force will receive a 5% pay rise backdated to April 1st, as well as a similar increase in allowances. The decision was welcomed by Police Scotland's Chief Constable Sir Ian Livingston. General Secretary of the Scottish Police Federation Callum Steele, who represented staff in the negotiations, said it would help to mitigate the cost of living pressures, but not fully overcome them. The pay rise reflects what was offered to officers in England in July. In a letter to officers, Mr Steele described the latest offer as a substantial improvement on the initial offer, which worked out at 1.4%. He continued, The staff side has been cognizant throughout this entire process of the importance of securing the best possible settlement for police officers against a backdrop of the most severe economic circumstances in almost 50 years. In reaching an agreement, the staff side recognises that whilst this increase in pay will mitigate some of the cost-of-living pressures faced by police officers, it will not entirely address them. By law, police officers are unable to take industrial action, but members of the Federation, which represents rank-and-file officers, withdrew all goodwill in June. It meant that the body's 17,500 members, amongst other things, did not start shifts early or take radio equipment home with them at the end of their shift. On Tuesday, Mr Steele said the pay talks were the toughest round of industrial negotiations in the police since the 1970s. He told BBC Radio's Good Morning Scotland, The fact police officers took the action to get us to this substantially improved position, an additional 3.6% on top of the starting point, is in itself a remarkable achievement by our members. Mr Steele rejected suggestions that tackling crime would suffer if the pay deal contributed to budgets being stretched. He added, the notion that that's necessarily going to mean police are going to be giving up on crime I think is a bit far-fetched. The Federation's General Secretary also said on the programme that the years ahead would be very challenging for the public sector. The Police Negotiating Board has been handling negotiations between the staff side, the Federation, the Association of Scottish Police Superintendents and the Scottish Chief Police Officers Staff Association and the official side. Chief Constable Sir Ian Livingston said, Officers work tirelessly every day to keep people safe across the country and it's right that their commitment to public service is recognised and rewarded. I'm pleased the Police Negotiating Board has reached agreement on this, particularly at a time when officers are concerned about the cost of living crisis and its impact on them and their families. An article written by Adam Robertson. The National News on Wednesday the 17th of August. Positive results for city's 20 mile an hour speed limit. An article written by Sean Bell. 
Edinburgh's citywide network of 20-mile-an-hour speed limits has yielded a number of positive results, including a substantial drop in traffic collisions and casualties, according to new research. A report evaluating the rollout of the policy three years after its implementation, which will be considered by the City of Edinburgh Council's Transport and Environment Committee tomorrow, found that average traffic speeds have dropped, with the overall average speed down from 23.77 miles an hour in 2016 to 21.92 miles per hour in 2021 across the 65 streets surveyed, with the fastest drivers dropping their speeds most. For every one mile an hour fall in speed, the research indicates a 5% reduction in accidents, while those accidents which do occur at lower speeds result in less severe injuries. Road traffic collisions have also fallen by 30% in the 36 months after the policy's introduction, with an attendant 31% drop in casualties, while the percentage of residents cycling at least once a week has gradually increased. Although a downward trend in harmful nitrogen dioxide emissions has also been noted, this reflects national statistics showing a reduction of pollutants around the country. Coupled with the atypical nature of 2020 due to the COVID-19 pandemic, results concerning air quality may be less than definitive. Edinburgh's Transport and Environment Convener, Councillor Scott Arthur, commented that he was committed to achieving Vision Zero – where traffic fatalities and severe injuries are eliminated, and hoped that the committee would agree to consult residents on the biggest and boldest expansion to the city's 20-mile-an-hour network since its introduction. Speaking to the National, Anna Semlayan, campaign manager for the Twenties Plenty for Us group, said, Edinburgh has led in Scotland on 20-mile-an-hour limits. Speed reduction is at the cornerstone of better, safer, more sociable places for people out and about. An article written by Sean Bell. The National. Politics. On Wednesday the 17th of August. RMT's Mick Lynch says will of Scotland must be expressed on independence. An exclusive article written by Xander Elliott. The will of the Scottish people on independence has got to be expressed, Mick Lynch has said. The General Secretary of the National Union of Rail, Maritime and Transport Workers, or RMT, told the National that the constitutional debate was for Scotland to sort out and I'll be happy to assist in that in our union. Mr Lynch, who shot to fame during June's rail strikes with his no-nonsense approach to interviews with prominent figures in the UK media, including Sky's Kay Burley and Talk TV's Piers Morgan, was speaking at an RMT meeting held in Glasgow's Renfield Centre on Tuesday evening when he made the comments. The union boss, who represents some 80,000 members, was appearing alongside other leading trade unionists in front of a packed-out hall, with the crowd spilling out into the hallways from the roughly 250-capacity Blytheswood Hall. Talking to the National before the event began, Mr Lynch was asked about whether he thought Scotland had the right to hold a second independence referendum. He said, The future of Scotland and its constitution is a matter for the Scottish people. I'm not going to come to Scotland and tell people what they should do and that the holding of a referendum is a matter to be decided democratically through all the means that the Scottish people have, through debate, and if that means a referendum at the end, then that's what will happen. But it's got to be the will of the Scottish people that's expressed, and it's not for me to come up from London and wade into that debate. That's for Scotland to sort out, and I'll be happy to assist in that in our union. We did that before on the last referendum.
We're a democratic union and we'll go where democracy takes us. Asked what he thought of politicians who come up from London and wade into the independence debate, Mr Lynch said he and his RMT union respect the rights of the Scottish people and the rights of Scottish democracy. It's up to the Scottish people what they want to do with their own country, he added. Ros Foyer, the General Secretary of the Scottish Trades Union Congress, which represents some 540,000 Scots workers, also spoke at the event. She won rapturous applause after calling on the Scottish Government to take action on the cost-of-living crisis with the limited powers it has, adding that it must stop blaming Westminster for all the problems. Mr Lynch echoed that sentiment, telling The National that people in government, no matter their level, had a duty to help people. He said... They've got to use whatever powers they've got to assist the people. That's the duty of a government, to assist their electorate, to assist the people that are struggling. Whatever powers the Scottish Government has, they've all got to put their shoulders to the wheel and show that they're supporting working people in a time of struggle. The meeting also featured speeches from the Communication Workers' Union, Craig Anderson, and Unite's Kate Lee. Mr Lynch branded the Tories as extremists and warned that the UK likely had the most right-wing government we've ever experienced coming our way. An exclusive article written by Xander Elliott's. The National, August 18. John Curtis gives verdict on Scottish Labour winning 25 Westminster seats. Report by Xander Elliott's. There is nothing which suggests Scottish Labour could win 25 seats at the next general election in a new report making the claim, Professor John Curtis has said. The polling guru was speaking to The National after having read through a report from the Scottish Fabians, a think tank linked to Labour, which said that 25 seats are within its grasp. The report looked at the results of the local elections in Scotland in 2022, which saw Scottish Labour return 282 councillors across the country, its second worst ever result. The SNP returned 453 seats, while the Tories slipped into third with 214 seats. Analysis of the voting patterns found that significant numbers of people who chose SNP and Green candidates as their first preference put Labour as their second. The Scottish Fabians report said, Our analysis quantifies the size of the opportunity for Labour and demonstrates that, statistically, 25 seats are within its grasp. There is no doubt there is still a mountain to climb but the path to a Labour government is now clear. However, the local elections were specifically focused on local issues, while the next general election is more likely to be focused on the Constitution. If the Supreme Court rejects a bid from the Scottish Government to legislate for India Ref 2, the SNP plan to fight the election on the single issue of independence. Curtis, the president of the British Polling Council, told The National, The Labour Party loses out the more that the constitutional issue polarises. There's nothing in this paper that indicates that the Labour Party 
will necessarily be more successful than it has been in the past. He said the chances of the party hinged on changing the agenda. And he continued, The thing they seem to be doing is saying, Look, a lot of SNP and Green voters put a Labour candidate somewhere in their second preferences. Therefore, these people appear to be accessible. The big step from that to saying that these are people who are necessarily going to be accessible to Labour is that in the 2021 Holyrood election, the constitutional divide was absolutely fundamental. The question that faces the Labour Party is, can they change the agenda for the electorate north of the border? The unionist vote is fragmented. The nationalist vote is largely behind the SNP. So the party won't make big gains unless, unless Labour can persuade people that the constitutional issue is not that central. And they'll be trying to do it at a time when, on the nationalist side, they will try to say to people, this is absolutely the crucial issue. The Scottish Fabians report said that it would be impossible to win the 25 seats needed for a Labour government without winning votes from the SNP. However, Curtis suggested that the constitutional question may be too central for this to happen, but added that Labour could benefit in areas where some of the SNP vote instead went to Green candidates. He went on, the headline is that there are only three constituencies, one of which they've already got, where they think they might be ahead on the votes. One of the things to note, of course, is that a lot of the constituencies that they say either they would win or would be competitive on first preferences are in Glasgow. The polling experts suggested that Glasgow was a special case and that it would be very difficult to dislodge the SNP. He said voters who supported Greens in the local elections could revert to the SNP. Asked if there was any truth to the claims that Labour will need to win a raft of seats in Scotland in order to win power in Westminster, Curtis said it would certainly make the challenge easier. The Strathclyde University professor said that if Labour only returned a single Scottish MP, they would need a 12-point lead over the Tories to win a majority. However, he said that that required lead would shrink and shrink the more seats were won from the SNP north of the border. Report by Xander Elias. The National, August 18. People with COVID could initially face greater mental health risks. Report by Adam Robertson. People with COVID-19 continue to face an increased risk of developing neurological psychiatric conditions, such as dementia, according to new research. There is also an increased risk of anxiety and depression in adults, but this subsides within two months of infection and over two years is no more likely than after other respiratory infections. 
The study of some 1.25 million people diagnosed with coronavirus found children were more likely to be diagnosed with certain conditions, including seizures and psychotic disorders. However, the likelihood of most diagnoses after COVID was lower than in adults. According to the research, the Delta variant of the virus was associated with more disorders than the Alpha, whilst Omicron was linked with similar neurological and psychiatric risks as Delta. Those involved in the study are calling for more support and resources for healthcare providers in diagnosing and managing these conditions. Lead author of the study, Professor Paul Harrison from the University of Oxford said, in addition to confirming previous findings that COVID-19 can increase the risk for some neurological and psychiatric conditions in the first six months after infection, this study suggests that some of these increased risks can last for at least two years. In addition to confirming previous findings that COVID-19 can increase the risk for some neurological and psychiatric conditions in the first six months after infection, this study suggests that some of these increased risks can last for at least two years. The results have important implications for patients and health services as it suggests new cases of neurological conditions linked to COVID-19 infection are likely to occur for a considerable time after the pandemic has subsided. Our work also highlights the need for more research to understand why this happens after COVID-19 and what can be done to prevent or treat these conditions. The study analysed data on 14 neurological and psychiatric diagnoses gathered from electronic health records, mostly from the United States, over a two-year period. It found that the chances of receiving a depression or anxiety diagnosis initially increased after infection. However, it returned to the same as other respiratory infections after a relatively short time. For depression, it was 43 days, and for anxiety, it was 58 days. After two years, there was no difference in the overall incidence of depression and anxiety between the COVID group and the other respiratory infections group. However, the risk of diagnosis of some other neurological and mental health conditions was still higher after coronavirus than for other respiratory infections at the end of the two-year follow-up. Adults aged 18 to 65 who had contracted COVID up to two years previously had a higher risk of brain fog and muscle disease compared to those who had other respiratory infections up to two years previously. The research also showed a higher occurrence of brain fog, 1,540 cases per 10,000 people, dementia, 
450 cases per 10,000 people, and a psychotic disorder, 85 cases per 10,000 people, in adults aged 65 and over who had COVID up to two years previously, compared to those who previously had a different respiratory infection. Harrison said that whilst the numbers are not trivial, they are not huge and should be set against the increasing burden of mental health issues which have occurred in the whole population as a result of the pandemic. Report by Adam Robertson The National, August 18 Lomond Bank's development wins support of community charities in Balach. Report by Xander Elliott Plans to put a tourism and leisure complex on the southern banks of Loch Lomond have won the support of a key local heritage and conservative charity. Friends of Loch Lomond and the Trossers, an independent charity set up in 1978 to oppose the construction of an energy plant near Ben Lomond, has given its backing to the controversial Lomond Bank's development. The charity's chair, James Fraser, said that the idea the £40 million building work would be on a virgin area of Loch Lomond was untrue and told the National the finished development could see significant benefits for the Baloch area. However, the support of the 500-member charity comes with caveats. In a submission to the National Park Authority, the Friends of Loch Lomond and the Trossachs say the project should be greenlit, subject to stringent planning conditions, including a guarantee of community use of the recreation facilities and the adoption of a transport action plan. The original proposals, which were withdrawn in September 2019, were redesigned and resubmitted in early 2022. The fresh application for the Lomond Bank site includes hotels, lodges, restaurants, cafes, shops, a craft brewery, a water park and external activity areas such as children's play zones and a monorail. The plans have faced a strong opposition not least from the Scottish Greens. The party set up a campaign urging people to lodge their objections to the plans in late July. It received more than 20,000 sign-ups over the first weekend. West of Scotland MSP Ross Greer said that more than 32,000 objections have now been lodged, adding it was absolutely clear where local people stand. He went on, Flamingo Land was forced to withdraw its application following the overwhelming opposition of the local community and Loch Lomond supporters across the country. It was the most unpopular planning proposal in the history of Scotland and this second attempt is no different. Local residents have repeatedly proposed a range of potential alternative uses for the site which could boost the social and economic well-being of the area, maintain easy public access 
and protect the world-famous natural landscape. But site owner Scottish Enterprise has so far been unwilling to deal with anyone other than the Yorkshire-based theme park operator whose only interest is turning a profit. Charity Chair Fraser said, We have carefully considered the latest outline planning application for this strategically important site, which, in our view, is the optimum and possibly last location on Loch Lomond site for major tourist and recreation development, as it has the benefit of being right next to a public transport hub with easily accessible rail, bus and water bus services. It has also been zoned for tourist and leisure development in local development plans and various policy documents for a considerable period and was bought back in the 1990s by Scottish Enterprise for this purpose after decades of being blighted industrial derelict land. We welcome the plans coming forward for Baloch at the present time as the village is facing an uncertain and challenging future as a thriving tourist destination. Despite the village being one of the main gateways to the Loch Lomond and the Trossers National Park, it is not realising its full tourism potential as a green and sustainable must-visit tourist destination. The charity further said that examples such as Centre Parks and Lake Garda in Italy showed how developments could move away from cars to more sustainable travel. The intervention comes as the prospective Lomond Bank's developers hailed further community support for the plan, including from the chair of the Maid of the Loch charity, Ian Robertson. The Maid of the Loch charity is involved in renovating the paddle steamer, which operated on Lomond's waters for 29 years. Robertson said, The Board of Trustees have met, and we believe that this new application answers many of the questions that were raised the last time this project looked to get off the ground. As a board, we have considered it carefully and believe that the Loman Bank's concept fits both with the local area and what the Maid of the Lock is trying to achieve. In an area that has lost so many jobs over the years, it is important that local people benefit from a successful development that complements the wider area and we believe that the proposed Loman Bank's plans will do just that. We hope that if successful, the developers will work with both us and other local businesses in making Baloch a place that people want to visit, stay and spend money in. Jim Patterson, the development director for the project, said it would create a world-class eco-tourism destination and he continued, it will bring jobs to the area, boost the local economy and provide a strong and sustainable development that will help both regenerate and support Western Bartonshire in the future. Having facilitated extensive public consultations prior to submission, we have listened carefully to a range of opinions 
including local people, businesses and other stakeholders, and have reflected these in our submission. Throughout the process, we have reiterated our commitment to working closely with businesses to ensure that the local area will benefit from the development throughout. And we believe that Loman Banks will create something that is fitting for the area and is sympathetic to its important location at the gateway of Loch Lomond. Report by Xander Elliott. And that was this week's The National Podcast, normally recorded in our studio at the Bishop Briggs Media Centre, currently recorded from our volunteers' homes with the publisher's kind permission. Thanks for listening.